Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me I'm always ready to drink the blood of God personally, like whether it's a transubstantiation or just like literally just like suckling from his side wound or from his crucifix. I'm just into it. And I want to be clear about that. Thank you for being here. Just to like introduce ourselves, my name is Cosima B. Concordia and I'm a submissive femme leather dyke based in Portland, Oregon, hopefully for not that much longer. But nonetheless, I write short trans horror fiction, essays, theory, and weird experimental fragments. And I'm on the internet as bimbo theory, generally. In past lives, I've been a bookseller, an English teacher in Korea, a philosophy student, and a little bit of a limp-wristed sissy. My whole thing is I really like pushing the boundaries of my body and self in intimacy and art. And I'm very deeply in love with my wife, Amanda, not actually married because I don't believe in marriage, and my daddy, Mac, who is not actually my father because fuck the family. And also um, my precious son, Mondu, who is a dog who was biologically birthed from my womb. (laughs) I hate talking about myself. (laughs) I know. I know you freeze up. It's so interesting to me. My name's Aurora Laybourne, and I'm doing my best not to become a jaded academic. I have my MA in philosophy, and I'm currently pursuing my PhD in the Chicago area, where I also live, work, and teach. Although, given the academic lifestyle, it's really unclear the extent to which I feel like I do any of those. And that's (laughs) actually my motivation for doing this, because I actually want to create something that's accessible or meaningful. I actually want to think about my life and how I'm living it. So, My dissertation research examines the failures of the justice system's carceral approach to sexual violence, an approach that I think leads to the grotesque reification of rape culture and which only leads to further re-victimization. I'm also really invested in challenging that notion of victimhood. Hell yeah. And that's, that's who I am. We're both so excited to be embarking on this project. This has been a long in the works project and to see it come into fruition has been a really lovely thing for us. So we're just going to drink and we're going to talk. Does that sound good? That sounds good. I I also thought thought just beginning with what are we doing? (laughs) What is is the point? Definitely in the original recordings, we went like pretty like deep dive into theory right away. Maybe that's a little bit alienating, but we're alienating people, Aurora. We need to stick by our guns. That's that's true. (laughs) So here we fucking are, Aurora. Here we fucking are. (laughs) Oh, oh, do do you remember the fifth and a friend game that you introduced? Yeah, the fifth and a friend game was horrible. Really? Really? It was like to be 21. God, I can't believe that we just like did shit like that. That we that was like relatively normal. Like we definitely like killed fifths together, like many times. That was what we did. Is I would go to my soul sucking minimum wage job, and minimum wage back then was like seven bucks an hour. And the manager was like the special kind of fucking evil where you would be working overtime, but she would schedule you so it would never count as overtime. 
Of course. Was, yeah. <laughs> it was a gift. It's really, you have to, you have to be gifted to be able to, like, I, I don't, I still don't know how she did it, but I'd get off of work and I'd bring the armfuls of the liberated stale bread from the dumpsters and we'd walk to the liquor store together and we would just get, we'd just eat bread and cheese. We ate so much cheese. It was such a beautiful thing, yeah. The and and we we drink wine and other alcoholic beverages. Truly, the the blood and flesh of uh, Christ mm-hmm. every night. You introduced me to Bloody Marys, actually. I did. That's great. I I don't remember that, but I you love don't remember that. that. Oh, that's like I feel like that was one of the first times that we hung out. We were both on food stamps back then. <laughs> That's true. We would get really extravagant cheeses off the government dime with with cheese. the bread that we got from the from the bakery job. Because yeah, I remember us buying pickles and pickled peppers in particular to make to make our own Bloody Mary mix because of your strong opinions about clamato. Mm, yeah, I really didn't like clamato. Clamato, as your taste changed. <laughs> no, I'm still not a clamato fan. Uh, like when I lived in Korea later, like clamato was the common thing or the most common way that they made Bloody Marys, which which I guess is like the Canadian way. Let's start with drunkenness and its relation to thinking embodiment. Okay. So there are a lot of different ways to think about being drunk, or there's a lot of different ways in which drunkenness is related to embodiment, because there are so many different ways to be intoxicated. So drunkenness, I think, really blurs the line that we want to create, or really forces us to collapse binaries between the mind and the sort of realm of the mind and of the thinking and of seriousness and of the body. So sensuousness, unreason, non-thinking, because drunkenness really pushes us into, into our bodies. So drunkenness, oh. as you're articulating it here, it's not just alcohol, it's drunkenness, a state kind of outside of sobriety, which doesn't even necessitate any sort of uh, substance necessarily. Mm-mm. No, in- intoxication doesn't necessarily have to involve uh, imbibing anything philosophically being drunk isn't about drinking it's about intoxication it's about being so overcome by something that you just feel yourself in your body i want to say that you could really only be intoxicated in a very physical sense i'm trying to imagine a non-physical non-embodied kind of intoxication so again drunkenness you feel yourself in your body so it doesn't necessarily necessitate imbibing anything necessarily it's like when we're using drunkenness it's much more expansive than that you can be intoxicated by a particular person so i have in mind this poem by baudelaire and it's about what it's like to be drunk what it's like to take opium and how none of those forms of intoxication are as intense as the the ways that he feels intoxicated when he looks into the eyes of this person that he's writing this poem for. Oh, that's so beautiful. It is really beautiful. Letting yourself get to that point, I think, is really beautiful. You should spend your life chasing intoxication because you want to spend your life chasing things that give it meaning or that make you feel like you're living it. Yeah. So I guess what what are we doing? So initially I had the idea from this project and then Drunk Church was a general idea that I got from when I initially transitioned. And 
when I came back to Portland, one of the first events I went to that I read one of my like nonfiction memoir pieces at was called Drunk Church. And it was this gathering of like queer folks that was kind of like, kind of like an art party. It was held in an actual <laughs> church where we all just like drank and shared art. Having that community and that ability to like share oneself was like a really important thing to me. And then drunk church just really stuck in my head as this foundational phrase. And I think I spent most of my life, you know, starting in early puberty, being so disassociated from my body. Like I was never embodied basically ever. Um, just kind of like a floating head, which is kind of why I am how I am. But then to be embodied for the first time to like really come into having a body and the experience of having a body. And, you know, I replaced actual drunkenness, which is which is a way that I kind of escaped the disassociation and like depression of life beforehand with drunkenness that was much more about eroticism. That's always been something that I think I've seeked out my entire life. Religion, like religious feeling and religious community that's honestly something that organized religion really fucking has over us is that they have incredibly powerful institutional community and if people do seek out religion like they do have these built-in communities and like support networks and all of that stuff and then often lots of the time really horrific ideology politically and otherwise comes with that then how do you do that as a bunch of anarchist queers at the end of the world right community is fucking hard it's hard to build, it's hard to maintain when you don't have an agreed upon holy bug. And I think that there is so many leather queers, their practices in like the way we experiment with pain and ritual and scenes. I think it often feels like a religious practice for us. And a lot of us really do drift towards a lot of religious imagery and symbolism. And I know that I've I've started appropriating, you know, all of this like Catholic imagery from my family because I feel very comfortable subverting it for fun and pleasure. Um, and then I think that really related back to the ties eroticism and how those concepts are so removed from the way that we're generally taught to like understand our lives and organize our lives. So we're taught to to think in a in this notion of objectivity that's sometimes referred to as a god's eye view so this pretend idea that i can remove myself from my body from my circumstance and view everything i think phenomenology like has been really important to me and that the the actual inner experiences that people have has always been more interesting to me than like coming up with the reason they have it like is it a chemical? Is it real or not? Those questions, like, like I do think they matter. It's not that those like don't have any relevance. It's just they're not the questions that I've ever been interested in. What questions are you interested in? <laughs> I'm interested in the ways that we create meaning and ritual in our own life and the experiences that that brings up, basically, and like the stories that we tell and how those shape our lived reality and our embodiment. I'm really fascinated in how we become subjects, how we become the categories that we are. So, <laughs> How we become identities. <laughs> yeah, how do we become identities? We're just, what kind of things am I having to navigate in order to be who I am? What kind of 
social relationships? What kind of political relationships? What What is the grid of intelligibility upon which I exist? And I think yeah. that there's a an impulse that people have to have a really flat vision of the world, a really, honestly, a really sober vision of the world. <laughs> Incredibly sober. Let's make a dichotomy between this drunkenness, this drunkenness that isn't a form of flight or a form of denial like a, a kind of drunkenness that isn't just from imbibing something like this drunkenness that is presence and that is embodiment and that is thinking oneself in a world with others versus this sober notion of again the, the god's eye view you can remove yourself from your experience you needn't have a body and you can just give an account of the world that is objective an account of the world that usually doesn't think that there are others in it. One of the things about the sober world, which is really, you know, very much the world of capital, is that the most that it can imagine drunkenness outside of the self, the most it can imagine it is something that is like recreational, something that is important as a brief diversion from the work that actually matters, which is like rational and like moving towards these like constructive projects. And then the worst that it can imagine it is as, as is like degenerate and depraved and destructive to the very fabric of a rational, coherent society. And this kind of notion of drunkenness also blunts the body, it blunts the body's feelings. So you're getting drunk not to feel, not to experience things. If you're drinking to escape versus to, to be present. Absolutely. I mean, I I know that the times in my life that I've worked the most, that I've been the most worked to the bone and the most beaten down, (laughs) the time that I did have that was free, it was largely about drinking largely as a escape so that I didn't have to think about work so that I could, could kind of like escape myself. And I think the drunkenness that we're trying to talk about isn't that. No. Again, it's (laughs) about being present. Like, I think both of us would agree. I like, I, I think that that part of inner experience, one of the things about it is that it is impossible to express in its fullness. Like, as soon as we have it, there's always a lack that language will never fully meet. And mm-hmm. so, you know, through poetry and through stories and through conversation, you know, we can certainly try to communicate, but there is also something that will be missing and, and will be this, like, in ineffable part of uh of experience we share an interest in this notion of communion because it tries to bask in that ineffableness that that ungraspableness or it tries to celebrate that there's something about a relationship with the other that is the experience of drunkenness and that it's an outside of the self why is it the religious versus the sacred? And this is also just because I'm not religious, I'm pragmatic. I don't believe in meaning. I don't believe in deeper meaning. So yeah, why the religious? Why are we using that? Why is that something that you were attracted to versus anything and everything else, especially given everything that you know about philosophy? Because I remember us talking a lot about the question of a cult and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, I have this vision of the oh my god, what were those Oregonian cults? What was that? The oh the this, ended, this actually ended a relationship of mine because we got into such a big fight about them. 
they were red. They yeah, no, I know, I know who you're fucking uh, talking about, and there's the whole documentary on them. What was that? That literally ended my last serious relationship. <laughs> oh no! Wait, why did it end it? Oh, the Rajneesh. The Rajneesh. Yeah. The Rajneesh. It ended the relationship because it became apparent from the arguments that we had about the Rajneesh that I didn't believe in reincarnation or an afterlife. And they were just so shocked. They couldn't fathom spending their life with someone that only thought they had one life to spend. That's so fascinating. That's really deeply fascinating. (laughs) Wait, why is that fascinating? I I would think that that would be really romantic of, no, I don't believe in the afterlife. I'm choosing to spend the limited time on earth I have with you versus that why we don't have eternity together. It's not good enough. (laughs) Yeah, well. I mean, that's the whole thing that Vitae, like, critiques about Christianity, that, like, the whole move that Christianity does makes discontinuity within continuity by damning everyone to, like, eternal discontinuity within God, which is the most horrific thing from the time, because the whole point of the religious structure is through transgression to, like, enter continuity through death and through sex and through the erotic through the religious experience. But then with Christianity, with the fucking invention of the soul, it's like, no, you as a fucking individual have to like be in heaven as you are. Like you don't get to just like enfold into God and become, you know, the everything. You are yourself. Those boundaries of you are eternal. That's that's (laughs) why the the body, it's it's why you can't like cremate certain bodies or why the body is so important because it's that's the body that you have with the when the when it's the reaping right they raise they raise you well in in some christian sects that are more like old testimony yeah the reason the the body has to be there is because the kingdom of heaven is literally on earth heaven is literally like a reviving of the body and then you're like your perfect body and then you get to like hang out in heaven or whatever which is what's the, earth what's the perfect body I don't know, like, body is just, like, whatever Jesus steams the most hot and sexy. Do you think Jesus has a type? Yeah, that's a great question, Aurora. What type do you think Jesus has? I'm trying to think of, like, nuns. I think he likes big, big, like, hairy bears. Like, he's just, like, such a little fucking twink, you know, and such a masochist. Like, he just wants daddy, you know? daddy he doesn't want mommy he doesn't want these older women these like sort of frigid older women that like don't fuck or want to be fucked but they fuck like Mm -hmm. i get it (laughs) (laughs) definitely fucked (laughs) he loved that for you you were thriving (laughs) it's very hard to lounge and and record We can have an episode on, like, the the phallic object of the microphone. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> so back to the religious, talking about, like, why the religious? Why that as a phrase? And I Versus think... the sacred, yeah. Well, number one, spiritual has been ruined, you know? <laughs> like, what? I think I think for Ruined's a really... Spiritualists? Well, yeah, like, for a really long time, and I think a lot of people still, and especially in places like Portland, you know, where I fucking grew up, like, (laughs) people will say 
oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. It doesn't like necessarily mean anything. It usually means like a lack of commitment or coherency to like anything. Usually religious at least implies some sort of commitment. The problem for me with the word spiritual is that it often means a bunch of the worst appropriative bullshit from like Mm -hmm. the worst people, like kind of like proto hippies slash like... I mean, it's such a weird collection of like different people. And I think religiousness for me, like implies a level of like devotion. I like the use of the word commitment because you're right. You you should have some fucking skin in the game. Like it's, you should be honest about what you're dogmatic about or the things that you just believe in unapologetically or believe in without any actual just cause rationalization. I mean, totally. And it's like, like, obviously, like, for sure, like, and it's like, obviously, like, spiritualism, or, you know, like, other words associated with, like, spirit, you know, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about spiritual, but I'm talking about spiritual, I think it's like, almost the problem with, like, liberalism, right, where it's like, what do you fucking even stand for? It's just like a base, a baseline of nothingness. And it's like, at the end of the world, you know, as a transsexual, the things I do, they're not spiritual. Like they feel religious to me. They feel like there's a discipline to them. I really believe strongly in ritual. I believe strongly in mythology and like the stories we tell and like symbols. So I guess- Religious is a commitment. Yeah. For me, why I use the word religious is I think from what I did study in like philosophy of religion and philosophy of mythology, it really relates to how as I've grown in like the- I don't know, like it's been like fucking eight years since I graduated college or something terrible like that. And I think the way that lots of those like philosophical concepts that really, like really, really resonated with me, but like didn't have a lived or embodied reality in my life at all at the time have come to be like much, much more meaningful to me. In college, Bataille was kind of one of the foundational thinkers of philosophy of religion for me, which has always been a fascination, specifically his concept of eroticism. I think really now as I have like become a leather dyke is the closest thing that I have to articulate those experiences. So eroticism for Bataille is that we are all discontinuous beings. So when we are coming up into the world, when we have a consciousness to be asserted to be life, you have a subjectivity, which means you are separated from the world, the continuity, the wholeness, the one of the world, and you see the world as other, as separate from yourself. Then we always have this desire, which various philosophers call the death drive, to return to continuity. And so his really fascinating insight is that the religious drive is a variety of the erotic drive. So for him, having sex, like physical eroticism, is a way of going past the boundaries of the self, of drunkenness, of, as the French say, a small death, like the moment of orgasm and dissolution of the ego. And and I think that's part of the reason why, like, sex is is such a fraught thing that it transgresses boundaries. And so then for him, love is a separate type of eroticism, which is emotional eroticism. So that's by having the object of desire and putting your source and access to continuity through your love of the other as a way to go past the boundaries of the self. 
the religious desire then is to take that even a step further beyond the object of desire, where through figures, through like myth, through ritual, you are able to access that feeling of continuity, like get as close to death without dying, basically. And so for instance, within Christianity, uh, we could say like the image of Jesus through the contemplation of the suffering of Jesus, we are able to then like contemplate death and then therefore also contemplate like the outside of the self and go transcend those limits. But it's a kind of transcendence that doesn't disavow our embodiment that doesn't let us forget that we are fleshy messy human beings in a world full of other human beings yeah and i think that's something that is foundational and like and it very much reads from my experience where when i was very disconnected from my body is actually when i felt the most disconnected from continuity (laughs) when i felt like the most of an island is when i was not in a body But then being a fleshy body is to have those boundaries always be a little bit in flux and blurred. And so eroticism then is that which brings being into question, like our subjectivity, our like coherency of self. It's so difficult to articulate to people like no matter how well-meaning, so many people find the shit I do very, very bewildering or just like straight up disturbing. It's because you say and do the things that other people can't for a particular reason and won't, that they choose not to do. (laughs) And those are the ones that I think are so off-put by what you do because it exposes the extent to which they aren't letting themselves live and they supplement their own desires through this hatred of another that they actually desire. And I know that (laughs) you have a lot to say about this. (laughs) talk a lot about this. It's been so interesting to being a queer or especially trans person on the internet who like talks about it in a sort of open way. Like people have so many crazy responses like all across the spectrum that you can really imagine, you know, like obviously the very like violent negative <laughs> reactions, but also people that are like really meaningfully like touched just by seeing some aspect of themselves something like really mundane and just like the ability to chase some like aspect of desire that is closed off because like you know i'm i'm opposed to to any sort of objective biological explanation for queerness or transness and i think desire to like chase embodiment and want and self is is so much it's kind of a religious thing you know it feels very deeply meaningful and like and it involves like a fuck ton of sacrifice to like go after the thing you want there's risk but to do it anyway yeah and yeah and a huge amount of risk and it's not about like safety it's about being vulnerable being honest being open like i just came home from you know my trip in texas with my daddy (laughs) and like i asked him to like give me a bunch of bruises before it was beautiful it was really beautiful we had like really beautiful scenes together where like we did a lot of needle play created a lot of new holes and like did beautiful things with flowers not to get too much into that like at the very end i was like about to unpack all of that yeah like i I want i I was like i want some some extra bruises to like take back with me a few hours before my flight it just like really fucking like went to town like biting the fucking shit out of me and like and i just have so many like crazy bruises all over my legs and like those are signs of 
love and like devotion and like they're very meaningful, you know, having the bruises, but then there's no way to convey that. And like literally no one or so few people can understand those mean like as like symbols of care and how that can be with any type of symbol. Like everything is contextual in the way that it is given either like consensually or non-consensually. <laughs> we impose taboos on the world, restrictions that exist within our unconsciousness, and then they allow us to work. They allow us to work towards common goals, you know, build society. And so things like violence and reproduction are things that have taboos on them during work and restrictions on them outside of work to basically like manage them. So like any form of sex, murder, thou shall not kill. <laughs> to name a classic one. Bataille has some like pretty vicious things to say about Christianity in particular, because Christianity rejects transgression. And for Bataille, the thing that's like the most important about eroticism and about the religious is that it actually relies on transgression. The whole point of taboos is that they are violated, like the old saying where laws are made to be broken. So it's actually that very action and creating these spaces in which transgression is allowed to occur, where the profane is transgressed, that the sacred is created. For him, the taboo is what creates the sacred. So for instance, like a dead body, we have all of these rules around the dead body. And obviously the dead body is also a profane object, and then it's like grotesque, and we're repelled by it. But at the same time, we are also compelled towards the body and see it as a sacred object in that there's like rules around how you have to pay respects to the body for Bataille. What the taboo does is that the taboo actually allows us to create and multiply and perpetuate desire far, far beyond what desire would be if taboo did not exist. We want to be the exception. So we want to be the one who can do something and get away with it, to do the thing that everyone else is too afraid to do, to do the thing that everyone else doesn't think to do because it is so literally unthinkable. For sure. Imposing limits is what inspires us to surpass them or what challenges us to surpass them. That was the... Like if we think about what Bataille would think today about the free love movement or think about like, you know, just pure affirmation or even the idea of like validation, the idea that what we should pursue is for all of society to affirm queerness, like not that Bataille you know, really engaged with queerness in meaningful ways. I think if he was here now he would, I think, laugh at that idea because taboos are necessary. And I, and I think I very much feel, and, and I think many folks in the leather community very much feel that there's something about the drive towards respectability and like the mainstream that is like kind of abhorrent. Like, no, like we're perverts. Like we do not want this to be something that is accepted by like the normiest normies because that foundationally is like changing the practice of what we're doing. I'm just thinking about Pride. I've never been to Pride. Yeah, I mean, Pride, like... I don't know if I'm missing out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've only been to the, to like parades like once or twice, and it's not my thing because it's just fucking hot, and I hate, and I hate I the like sun. Parades. <laughs> yeah, the and parades are like terrible. standing on hot, on hot asphalt in the... 
blazing sun. I don't actually like rainbows either. <laughs> what am I gonna do? Like, like stand again on hot asphalt and, and the sun beating down on me and like watch cop cars with fucking pride flags temporarily pasted on them drive by. <laughs> no, thanks. no, really, for sure. Yeah, and it's like, and it's like after parties are great and like political actions happening through through pride are, are great. But yeah, the actual thing in itself, I think, is it very much feels for like the newest of queers, like very baby queers and like. Straight, straight people yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah straight people can wear rainbows so yeah for sh- for sure you know allies i say that obviously with a grain of salt <laughs> hope i hope i ho- hope that that is is clear to our viewership when i when i use the word oh. ally Bataille was like a a very you know fervent marxist and his attitude towards like the communist party and and like affiliations changed depending on the time period and and also like the context of World War II. But one thing that he believed was that fascism would always win and would continue to win because fascism had a better myth, because fascism understood that people are not these like perfectly rational creatures and that the way that we construct story and meaning and, you know, what I would say is the religious is foundational to the ability to create ideology. And while I think you could certainly argue that some of Marxism does do that, and in my experience, I've certainly seen that uh, that he saw Marxism as as like a kind of like cold rationality. And so even though it was like the correct cold rationality, he really believed that we needed a Marxist myth to compete with the fascist myth. And so he was part of this like group of surrealists and artists that created the secret society called Asaphale, the headless god. And so they created this figure, this kind of, you know, Marxist figure that is representative of everyone. And they genuinely... This was this was before the war. <laughs> Maybe they were a little more naive. A bunch of them were willing to be literal sacrifices, like to actually be murdered in order to create this image of the sacred. But then none of them were willing to be Judas. <laughs> and, and like and, and you know, killing. like be the executioner, which I think you- I think is like there's a lesson in there. You think that they would know better to accept death and killing as a like as a good ethical limit. Like it's a really stupid ethical prohibition when it comes down to it. That killing is the limit is, is dumb. I would kill you if you asked me. Thank you, Aurora. That's so sacrifice. sweet. I would, so I would sweet. do that for you. <laughs> I love that. I would like to think that I would, but I'm also like, you know, I'm very much the bottom, the masochist in the situation. <laughs> like, I would certainly support your uh, desire, but I I don't think I would. Uh... You wouldn't be my Judas? I'd be your Judas. You wouldn't be my Judas? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. To, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to. I, ju- I, I just can't commit to it right now. Or I just can't. I just can't of... commit. You know, it, <laughs> okay. we'll talk about this later. <laughs> Limits are okay. Limits are okay. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly think that Bataille might have been what brought us together. I think Bataille is who brought us together. Incredible. But I I love that. Like my favorite thing to do now, my hobby is collaging and it's because of our time together. That's true. I mean, I think that's something that's so funny is that like we decided to 
like get those porn magazines and and then and then I think it was a Baudelaire poetry book and like cut them up and like made these collages that might have been the first time that we hung out and we went to an art gallery and we're just looking at the art and we were just being ignored by everyone there (laughs) and we just left and we made a ton of Bloody Marys I know that that was really the the impetus. I love that. Well, and, and we also had, a, yeah, we got all of the different pickled things for all the different Bloody Mary, like, concoctions. It was so funny because I feel like I had to do all the cutting of things out. I mean, you were the one that picked out the words and the poetry. Why well, was that? The whole thing with me pre-transition, and I mean, and also, like, pre, pre-diagnosis with, like, you know, my, my sluggish cognitive tempo thing is that my dexterity was like so terrible. I was like so disembodied. I was so bad at like navigating, like cutting things straight. <laughs> I couldn't do anything straight. <laughs> but, um, um, but you put everything together. We like, it was a collaborative effort. I'm, I'm actually really, I went and looked back at them and they're, those are good pieces. Those are solid. Yeah, I like them a lot. We've like stayed in contact. You're like one of the people who I've like talked to most regularly, like throughout, like basically that whole, this whole like almost decade. Oh, same. And this for me was wild. I was thinking about this too, of how confusing it was that it's you and me. It also makes the most sense that it's you and me. I mean, it's been really great working on this stuff with you and like doing this like theory work because on the one hand we're going back to this like kind of (laughs) irreverent work that we were into in the first place but then also like quite rigorous like I've been I've been doing so much more fucking reading of theory and like you're you're just a very you're a very rigorous thinker and you've been like engaged in that world for me it was really remarkable because we've always supported each other's work and you've always been there for me and you're one of the only people that I've been able to go to when I've been hurt or confused about academia. You've been the only person that's been there for me to be honest about what I've experienced. Oh, but- you're gonna make me cry. I yeah, I mean I I am so happy that we are working on this together. I feel like it was it was really it really fell into place so perfectly and fortuitously. Even though we've, you know, I I think the last time we saw each other was, you know, like what four four or five years ago, probably like when the I, last time when you I were fled in, Oregon. Yeah, yeah, like the last time that you were like briefly in Portland before you went to grad school, and <laughs> like we haven't like been in the same place, but you know that we've like still been so important to each other, and then are like able to come together on these like like shared commitment to these ideas that are like really meaningful to both of us. It's fundamental. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very good. You know, I think that there is a lot of grasping for meaning in, in this time when the world is ending in, in a lot of ways, you know, like climate catastrophe and rising fascism. How do we continue to go on? One of the things that's always scary in times like these is that fascism is so good at grabbing onto those feelings of hopelessness. And so like, how do we create alternatives? Organized religions come in many different forms and some are much better than others. But I think it's certainly true that a lot of people, when they're like confronted with 
death or hopelessness or they have kids or and they haven't <laughs> so or they haven't really by death and hopelessness confronted by their own death that's, yeah well that's that, the same that, thing having kids and confronted with death and hopelessness that they end up that they end up just like returning to the way that they grew up and that there's something about the church these very like pre-built structures that do offer a very ready-made community, a ready-made way to understand how the world functions. And of course, we would completely reject that there could ever be any coherency, any final way in which to understand the world or reality. But that's incredibly difficult when we're in such hard times, you know? (laughs) We want to get drunk. (laughs) Yeah, we want to get drunk. And I think this show for us is very much a way to explore explore drunkenness in that sense. Like, how do we explore that feeling of the religious? How do we access that feeling of continuity, of community, like in a time in which things are so fucking terrifying? (laughs) Next episode, we're going to be talking about Bataille's mysticism in relation to the Christian mystics. And we're also having a bonus episode that's going to be coming out soon, which is our review on Benedetta. But before we close out, we're going to do a little confessional, which we're going to do at the end of every episode. I've been doing this for a while on my Instagram where I get people to send in anonymous confessions about whatever. And there are always a variety of things. And we just chose six of our favorites and we're going to read through them so confession number one i started putting tea gel on my clit because i want a bigger dick i love that for you Mm -hmm. yeah i've heard actually like some trans women also do that to like fight atrophy if they're not if they like don't have dysphoria around and in either direction, you know, if if that's what you're into, not my thing uh, for myself, but I am certainly into it for others. <laughs> <laughs> Second confession, I'm in a healthy polyamorous relationship, but still fantasize on cheating or cheating on my partner. That's great. I'm really glad you're in a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't brag. Yeah. <laughs> or brag brag (laughs) i mean well you know so it's like like fantasy is fine you know like thoughts are great mind police is bad um action Mm -hmm. is where morality holds and like you can also create things where you can like explore that fantasy in ways that like could be consensual or or even maybe with your partner but still explore that fantasy so i don't know things we're thinking about so I feel like I might be trans, but I'm waiting for my parents to die before I try anything substantial like HRT. Oh, this makes me sad. I would say like you may really, really resent your parents and not have the best memory of them if they represent the lack of you being yourself. But like I, I get it, like it's hard to transition is to pursue desire and to pursue self in a way that may feel irrational. But I would still do it because I think I think that should uh, that should take priority. Mm-hmm. Next one. I always cry after sex, and I'm not sure why. Same. I mean, not not always. I guess I, I haven't really been having sex lately. <laughs> but I I cry after I masturbate. I guess it depends on what what kind of cry. <laughs> is, it a, is it a nice cathartic cry? Like a 
like a happy cry like eyes watering is it a no one will ever love me cry <laughs> yeah there's there, there there are there's lots so of- many types of crying i cry i cry during um during a lot of of different kinds of sex and i and i really like it it's actually very much part of sex for me um mm-hmm. so uh yeah okay so I'm absolutely desperate to feel dominance for my partner to make me submit. I love her, but a month into couples therapy, it feels kind of hopeless. Um, this sounds hard. I've been in a relationship that like didn't start out in a BDSM context where we like work to make that happen. And, and that did like take self work, but also sometimes people aren't into it. Like d- does your, does your partner want that? Is that something that they potentially like can see themselves doing in a reasonable way or or is that just you trying to like project and like you know maybe maybe you should look depending on how important that is into you like maybe you want to look elsewhere relationships that end aren't always failed relationships relationships that change certainly aren't failed relationships you can go from them being one kind of partner to them being one kind of friend to them being a partner again things things shift and change and our final one, which is just legendary, honestly, <laughs> is I stole $5,000 from an ice cream shop and gave it to my friend for gender confirmation surgeries. Sir, madame, gentle them, beautiful human, wh- wh- whatever. Baby whoever, angel. Baby angel. Whomever you may be, um, we love you and, and you're, doing, you're doing God's work, truly god's work on earth truly truly truly. but yeah absolutely hero shit uh we we all stand we all stand you here if you don't stand this person get the fuck out i don't i don't know how i feel about the word stand but i respect this person (laughs) okay (laughs) fair whatever use your own words i will i will all right um well i think that's it for today so uh if you want to support our show you can leave a comment and rate us wherever you get your podcasts it's apple podcast spotify etc 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 if you want to support us in an ongoing way or listen to our bonus episodes which will be reviews then you can sign up at patreon.com slash drunk church and we are so excited to be here with you godspeed everyone Godspeed. <laughs> Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for 